Welcome to Viewpoints, uh, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Gross. It gives me great pleasure to welcome regular guest to uh, Viewpoints, Dr. David uh, Roy uh, from the University of New South Wales, lecturer in the School of Education. Welcome again to Viewpoints, David Roy. Hi, nice to be here again, Henry, speaking to you from Newcastle. Absolutely. Now, David, just off air before we were uh, started this interview, we were talking about um, a, a, a thread, uh, a name, and that is what's the what what sort of hope is there in terms of school education looking forward? Because um, we don't need to spend this interview talking about all the gloomy things uh, about it. Uh, so. sa- safe to say that there is uh, a crisis in public education and education per se in in, in Australia, and I dare say it uh, in many other countries as well. Mm-hmm. Um, from your perspective, uh, where do we start in generating hope? Uh, for our students via um, a much uh, more robust and respected and engaged workforce? Well, my principle has always been from, and I come from a a glass half full kind of person. I'm always an optimist. Why do people go into teaching in the first place? Because you don't do it for wage. You don't do it for hours, because despite what the holidays say, they're not that great. The reason people become teachers is hope, is they believe that they can make a difference and that the future, the young people will make a difference that we have all kind of screwed up slightly on this planet. Mm. So the whole idea of education is that people can grow and change, which is nothing but optimistic hope. So the problem, I I would argue, for the demoralization in the education system and and the moribund nature of it and its, its decay isn't in the teachers, isn't in the kids, because hope is there. That's how it starts. It's more to do with the structures we've created around it and the value that we've given education. So we want hope and we want that optimism to remain. And and we're losing it from from staff who are demoralized. Well, maybe why don't we take the principles that our lovely new liberal society puts elsewhere and say, if we value it, then actually put a value on it. And that means paying a decent wage actually funding all schools to the same so that whether you're in some expensive Ballarock um, private school or in uh, a public school in midtown Melbourne, you actually have the same kind of resource access. It shouldn't matter on wage. So pay the schools properly, pay the staff properly, and try to push universities to say, although the students you're getting in are good, We want the best. We want those who are going to go to medicine and law to also do teaching because that basically sets up the next generation. So set a higher ATAR to say this is a desirable degree to do, this is a desirable wage to have, and there's a career progression. It's basic. It's really simple to do. Offer in education what we offer in the most successful businesses. A good wage, good career progression. That's what you give. So that sounds nice and simple, and it does. Um, Why why is it so difficult to appear to get there when uh, people propose uh, those sorts of things? Uh, For example, let's look at the school resource standard funding. At the moment, it bears very little resemblance to the original Gonski aims, and you propose this, and we've got a new Minister for Education federally, Jason Clare, who... Mm -hmm has um, deferred any decisions pending further information. Uh, the cynics then say, well, 
Mr Clare's delaying something that doesn't need delaying and of course we get depressed. Yep. Well, that's, that's the problem. It's the politicians. They are. They don't seem to be scared about spending three hundred to four hundred billion on submarines that we actually don't need because China's not going to invade. No offense. They need us as much as we need them. Um, when you could put just a fraction of that into education and have the most well-funded education system in the world, but we don't seem to value our kids. We put it in words but it doesn't seem to translate into actions. I, I like Mr. Clare. Um, I'm not going to deny it. He's very charismatic. Um, he is. He says the right things, but for me, it's not just about the words, it's about the actions. Um, it's about implementing them. If we've had a review, we've had expert reports, why do we need another one? Just implement it. We had this problem with Gonske. We had this problem all the time, actually, across the political spectrum, where they pay for experts to give advice, but they need to actually just take that advice and not adapt it, because as soon as you start to adapt it, it goes wrong. It's like going to your garage mechanic and they say you need to get this 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 done in your car to be safe and you as the non-expert say okay well i'll maybe change that slightly and then your car breaks down and crashes and you kind of wonder why well because you didn't rely on the expert who's trained in what they do Mm. Okay. So I hope he applies it. Yes, yes. Well, our fingers are crossed, and at the moment we've got to give him the benefit of the doubt and, I guess, mm -hmm. keep on pushing. Looking at another angle of uh, hope, and that is that um, at the moment there, there is some, I guess, frustration in schools uh, among teachers and school leaders in how we how and what we're actually doing in schools uh, we we wonder whether what we're doing is the most invigorating and creative and inspiring teaching and whether the accountabilities for which we're beholden to are actually the accountabilities that make the real difference uh, looking at it from a, a pedagogical angle where's the hope I think there's always going to be hope because, again, we're using individuals within the classroom. And we actually saw this in COVID that we still require teachers to engage with kids and try to be creative in how they delivered curriculum online, as challenging as that was for so many families, which were also going through a mental challenge, whether we wanted to admit it or not, through fear of, of COVID, of death, of isolation. We need people. We need the individual to be creative in the delivery. Now, there will always be targets we have to meet. Now, whether or not those targets are valid is, again, coming back to that expert connection. We are always saying we're going to focus on literacy and numeracy. Well, why wouldn't you? But sometimes if we do it to the detriment of other knowledges, that polymath idea of multiple knowledges feeding each other is lost, and we become suddenly just robots learning how to recite items but never understanding how to apply them and again it comes back to what we said about the politicians it's about having knowledge but then applying it in action and that's what makes the creative learner and that's what makes the creative ed teacher is when they can take knowledges and then use them and apply them because there must be a purpose behind them if that makes sense yeah. there's been criticism of the um, universities in terms of 
their pre-service training and uh, mm -hmm. Minister Clare and other ministers have said we do need a reform of, uh, yep. of, of the pre-service training and even post-service training. Where do you sit on that? You work in the School of Education at University of Newcastle and you would be well aware of those comments. I'm very well aware of them. I'm also going to be very well aware of them. I've got to be careful what I say here. <laughs> but I would, uh, I totally agree that the more we can get students into schools so they can apply the knowledges they're learning here, the better, because it's, it's a mixture of the two. Now, we are not at universities creating teaching-ready students. We are creating students who then have a degree that they can apply as they develop as teachers in the classroom. So there's never been an argument that saying you're going to come straight out of university and that's you ready to go, full stop. And that's why we need to have supports in place for schools. There was a, a wonderful process when I was in Scotland that we had with students coming out would then have a 60% timetable to allow them to have about 40% time to develop as teachers in their first two years of being employed and therefore they could grow and become the teacher applying the knowledges they had. Are there things that we are informed by politicians we need to provide at the universities? Yes. Are they always relevant? No. But they, again, are saying you need to teach this, 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 and we're going, and then you criticise us because we're not doing other things. So there's a kind of a, a disconnect between the two, and maybe if they spoke to the deans of education and said, what do you actually need to teach to make these teachers great teachers coming or ready for teaching that would be a better way of going than imposing things that universities have to provide and then saying you're now providing the wrong things which is what the message seems to be uh, i think what people need is they need to have a subject knowledge which is potentially the degree and then they have to have a pedagogical knowledge which is the education degree. And part of what I've always argued is some of the best students I have are the postgraduate students. Those who have done a degree in maths or science or history somewhere else, or even at the University of Newcastle, and then they come and do their postgraduate teaching qualification. It's a system that's worked across Europe successfully. Mm. And it's a fairly new thing here in Australia. And I find those students are some of the most engaged and the most responsive and they're the kind of students I look at and go I'd send my kids to them uh, to be taught so maybe that's one of the ways we need to look at that but doing a postgraduate degree costs more money which is why I would then say if you want people to do teaching degrees make them free because mm. that takes off a financial burden but we're again back to that situation where governments say what they want but are not willing to put the money where their mouth is Good point, Dave. We're going to take a short break. Can you hold the line? Of course. <laughs> Welcome back to Viewpoints Listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grossack, in the middle of a discussion on um, hope for education uh, in, in Australia with Dr. David Roy, who's a lecturer in the School of Education at the University of Newcastle, New South Wales. Welcome back, David. Thanks, Henry. Always good and challenging to speak with you. Oh, and uh, I always acknowledge your fearlessness in uh, in and, and 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 honesty and authenticity in the way that you answer questions. And and as I know from my own experience, um, authenticity and transparency of opinion is not always 
um, uh, honoured or welcome to to all the people who um, are privy to that level of uh, openness. Would you agree I with think, that? I, I would agree. I think that there's different ways about being honest. Sometimes people see honesty as just being when they're being brutal and they're being cold and they're being hard and they say, oh, I'm just being honest about my thoughts. I'm going, well, there's ways to be honest, but I think there must be truth in what we say. And I think one of the problems that we sometimes have is we avoid truth. And so therefore people who maybe do say the difficult things get lambasted for it. But it's when you say the difficult things, make the comments that are uncomfortable, but not necessarily personal, but uncomfortable for the mm. wider grouping, that you get change. And that's what hope also brings back to me, is the fact I believe there can be change. So I try to be, uh, I've been told that I can be quite direct, but I will never try to be personal, if mm. that makes sense, because I think that's a weakening when you use ad hominems. and You, you look at the wider overview, because we're all imperfect human beings. Mm. It's interesting, because I was uh, reading some research from what's called the Centre for Research in Hope at Oklahoma University in the mm -hmm. USA. And uh, it's fascinating because it, it takes a positive psychological standpoint in it. And uh, the, the bottom line to their research is that people need hope and hope can drive change. Absolutely. I think actually hope always drives change because negativity has no long-term results. There's no research that says by being negative has a long-term good result for the benefit of the community. It is hope that has the long-term application. And so sadly in society, given the small kind of turnaround of political elections, is we never quite get to see that benefit. But if you look back in the past, you'll see those people who saw the potential for positive change that had a long-term impact over mm. time. Mm. And, and of course, um, the cynic would say, and I think we need to get past that, hope of itself uh, doesn't lead to change and just having yeah. hope won't guarantee change. But as you said, the, um, the reverse... Uh, is without hope, there is no hope <laughs> for change. Yeah. Well, you, you still, you still need that kernel, that mustard yes. seed, of to allow it to grow. But then you must water it, you must feed it, you must actually support it and care for it, so the hope can grow into something that you can use. So mm. I'm using that kind of analogy, probably stolen from someone like Jesus or something. <laughs> <laughs> More than likely. Talking about hope and talking about uh, the, the, this whole topic, and we've focused very much in the first part of this interview on uh, what we can do to the school systems and we need to upgrade the status of the profession in, in <clears> with, a, with a few very fundamental uh, structural changes, and, and you cited some of those. Um, I was chatting with some tertiary friends on the weekend and uh, who work in education and I put to them that's all well and good but at our universities is the faculty of education as valued and honoured as we're talking about it needs to be by our politicians and our public because universities are powerful institutions and they're all mm -hmm. on about education and I said to them um, I doubt whether the faculties of education in our universities enjoy that level of status uh, and, and influence within the university decision making that we're talking about needs to be in the wider society and without that um, that does reduce hope so what about our universities 
<laughs> I think you want to get me fired today, Henry. That's what the goal is. I will, I will tread carefully, but I'll try to be honest about this one. I would argue that individuals within universities of whatever faculty or school get recognised by the university management. And normally it's to do with the fact that they've pulled in big grant funding. It's all down to the dollars again. What I do find interesting is schools of education tend to be, in better or no worse, a cash cow because we have large student numbers, which brings in large student fees, which helps to fund the university. Whether or not we then get the same respect, I know that the School of Education here at Newcastle is recognised as one of the highest quality schools at Newcastle in the world rankings but we don't get promoted that way. And to be honest, we tend not to promote ourselves that way either as well as we can, um, unlike, say, the School of Medicine or the School of uh, etc., who do manage to promote themselves and therefore get recognition. So it's, it's a two-way process. I think schools of education have expertise that isn't applied across the university. I think that we don't promote ourselves, and I think we sometimes as universities do harm because we don't always all hire the best people to work in these places. Um, sometimes we hire people because they've had some interesting research that doesn't make them a great teacher. And I think we have to recognize that there are strengths of different skills within universities. There are some people who are great at the kind of the service role. That's the role of kind of organizing and, and pulling things together. There are some people who are great doing research. Fantastic. But there's some of them who are great at teaching, and we also need teachers for students. So it depends on the focus of each university, and I think there should be a balance, and they should all be equally recognised. But governments give funding for research, which means that universities will always promote researchers above teachers. And yet, if you think about the majority of people in the world's interaction with a university, it's through the teaching element, the lectures and the tutorials. Mm. So maybe that's another fundamental change that universities are just reflecting society where they're not respecting teaching to the same degree consciously or sub or, and I think it's mainly subconsciously. Um, and they talk about doing so, but again, the funding from government comes to research. So I'm going to blame governments again. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, I think every politician knows that uh, they're on a hiding to nothing in terms of responsibility, expectation and blame. And, of course, they do nurture that with um, very idealistic uh, uh, language more often than not. But it's, it's because it's hard to quantify quality of teaching. That's a really hard thing to do. You can point to research and get results and say, this is what this research showed so we can fund it. It's much harder to quantify teaching and saying, so therefore we'll reward that. Because it's always contextually individual. Whatever the person in front of you is and the individual delivering it is. That's why um, people who want to argue, you know, higher wages for the best teachers are onto hiding to nothing in many ways because it's hard to quantify what is a great teacher. How do you measure that? I think there are ways to do it, but it's over a long period of time. And there's whole inequities being built into that. So I ha I'm, it's problematic. And that's why teaching, again, will not have the same respect because it's hard to measure it.
And of course, with teaching, I think one of the things people forget—you're quite right. There is a difference between teachers. There, you can you can you can identify an outstanding teacher and an ordinary teacher, but mm-hmm. then um, in terms of recognizing that in terms of salary isn't always that easy because teaching is very much a collaborative thing Um, in many ways a great teacher relies on the rest of their team in the earlier years the support at any given time um, to deliver the sort of results they get it's not a a one-person outcome in terms of uh, the recognising their ability, and yet, of course, there is a difference between the outstanding teacher and the ordinary teacher. Yeah, and and you're not going to have every teacher being outstanding because we don't have that in every aspect of every job. What you do have is when we come across those teachers who are damaging the system, Mm. we need to get rid of them. I've always argued this, and they're a minority, but by getting rid of them, you lift everyone's game. And part of the challenge that we've had with unions is they protect those who damage. In fact, I would. some people have said, and I don't say this, so please don't sue me, that, wow, the bad teachers go into running the union. Now, that's a whole different issue. Uh, but we need to get rid of the bad apples, whether it's because they're causing damage pedagogically because they're lazy or incompetent, or for those who actively seek to cause harm. And get, we need to get rid of them, and at the moment, we don't. And, of course, the corollary to that point is to get rid of them, we need more people who are, you know, above the median line so that we've got the numbers to be able to do that. Yes. So it's a chicken and egg situation again. Mm. And it's about recognising the profession of teachers in schools and also teachers at universities and saying, we need to fund this properly, we need to pay it properly. David, time's got away from us and I must say that at the end of this interview I'm still filled with some hope. So you've certainly you've certainly not diminished my hope. <laughs> that's that's important because that's one of the things as educators we should do is we should pass on potential and hope to our kids. Absolutely, and uh, and as I've often said to people, um, if you don't go into teaching with the view of making a difference uh, and, and a positive difference, then it isn't the career for you. No, exactly correct. And-